You know, when I was sitting here thinking, I was talking to Eli, and I was like, how do we celebrate one the 150 episodes of the podcast? What we do is we get the National Treasure to help us celebrate uh, 150 episodes, right? So what we've done is we've got with Nick Aldis, and we're giving him not one, but two episodes. So this is part one of our interview with Nick Aldis. We're going to dive into uh, his early career, how he got involved with NWA, and how he got uh, his hands on Sweet Charlotte. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Here is part one of our interview, episode number 149 with Nick Aldis, which, by the way, please make sure you follow us on Instagram, Battleground Podcast. Uh, we're right near 1,000 followers. When we get to 1,000 followers, we're going to do a big giveaway. I've got some autograph stuff here. Uh, at the home studio. Going to give that stuff away once we hit 1,000 followers, so please make sure you follow us Instagram. It is Battleground Podcast Twitter. We are Battleground IHR, and we're on Facebook as well. Just find Battleground Podcast. But without further ado, your heavyweight champion of the world, uh, enjoy part one of our interview with Nick Aldis. Let's hit that theme song. From the Parts Unknown Studios, this is the Battleground Podcast. Battleground! The Battleground! Battleground! The Battleground! Your place for all things pro wrestling. From the independent scene to WWE, AEW, ROH, NWA, and Impact Wrestling. That's the Battleground! Topics, as well as interviews with some of the biggest names in the game. The Battleground Podcast starts now. Yes. Here are your hosts. Welcome to the Battleground. Oh, it's true. Battle and Eli. Yes. It never gets old hearing that theme song. Uh, welcome to the Battleground Podcast, episode number 149. Uh, Eli's with me, and today we have uh, the greatest wrestler in the world, the real champion of wrestling, the national treasure, freaking Nick Aldis joins us on the, on the show. Nick, what's up, man? Oh, thank you for having me, guys. That's, that's quite, the, quite the introduction. We uh, we had to jump at this because it, we're we're so honored to have you on the show, and uh, I mean the national treasure we've had. You know we've had Camille on, we've had some stories about Nick, and we've uh, we've been waiting for Nick, and we finally got Nick on the show. So this is a great time for us. We got to talk to the boss man too. Billy was in the studio with us, so we got oh, we got really? That's we got cool. some we got some we got some dirt on you, sir. We got, got some dirt. Got some gets. Got some gets too, <laughs> and, Billy. And, 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 Billy's yeah, hard he, to get a hold of for uh, for for regular interviews, but if but for, but if people want to interview him about wrestling, he's like, yeah, sure. When do you want to do it? Yeah, it was it was cool because I play guitar too, and obviously they were a huge influence. So it was like half music, half. Uh, wrestling and uh, Josephus was with him filming and stuff, and then we interviewed him a couple weeks later. So, um, oh, so very yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, we're huge NWA fans. I'm glad to hear it. So normally, what we do is we we kind of throw up a little softball question. It's just kind of get the juices flowing for the show. So the first question we're going to ask is, you know, who were some of your favorite wrestlers before you broke into the business, and did you have an aha moment where you're like, this is what I want to do. I want to be a professional wrestler. Yes. So as a kid, um, <clears throat> I'd say my, my first real hero uh, was Brett the Hitman Hart. Oof, um, good one. Brett was, 
I, I try to explain this a lot to American fans because obviously Brett was a huge star and a huge, uh, you know, a huge influence to a lot of wrestlers, particularly from my generation. But I, I don't, I don't know if if American fans truly grasp just how how huge Brett was uh, to fans overseas. You know, to Wembley Stadium, people always kind of talk about that show. You know, SummerSlam '92. Um, but the you know the, the the perfect example of that is that there was a split crowd. You know, like yeah, there was some. There was obviously there was some uh, patriotism, and they were you know cheering for Bulldog, and there was the kind of uh, you know a- almost the sort of token booing at times, but more from a sort of just because they were wanting they wanted Davy Boy to win. But Brett was, I mean, to, to British fans and to German fans especially, and to you know fans all over the world, Brett was. Brett was the man, you know, he represented us because I've said this before and it's been misquoted and taken out of context and everything, but you know, I don't give a shit. But, uh, the, the, the thing I always explain to people is like, I I'm English. I grew up in England. And so while I understood that Hulk Hogan was a huge star and I, and I, and I was like, that's Hulk Hogan. Everybody knows who that is. You know, he's an icon. Uh, he was also a guy who waved an American flag around a lot and his music was real American and it was all about America. So you didn't feel, you know, if you were, if you weren't an American, you didn't feel as included in that. Whereas Brett was Canadian, but because of his appreciation for the sort of, he, you know, he sort of represented the world. Um, And I just, I, I don't know. I just, and also just, I just thought he was cool. Like when I was a kid, like you wanted to be cool. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to be like, if I was going to be one of the Ninja Turtles, I wanted to be Leonardo. You know, I wanted to be like Ryan Giggs, who played for Man United and was like one of the first, he was like a heartthrob and girls loved him and he's gone on to be a legend. But you know, at the time he's this like 17 year old sensation and he's got like cool hair and, you know, chicks dig him. And then I would be Bret Hart. He's got long hair, sunglasses, leather jacket, cool music. Like he was just cool. You know, yeah. he wasn't cheesy. He wasn't over the top and silly and ridiculous. And like, I think that speaks a lot to the sensibilities of of British people and Canadians and a lot of other people all around the world. So Brett was Brett was my guy. Um, and then later on, when I really sort of had that sort of penny drop moment, like you were talking about, um, as far as realizing, oh, I think I want to do more than just be a fan of this. I think I want to actually do this. Um, was uh, WrestleMania 15, uh, Rock and Stone Cold. Mm. I just, I just remember, just uh, you know, people talk about that, you know, the, the the Austin and Rock, you know, rivalry, and obviously with with good reason. I mean, it's you know one of the biggest of all time, huge box office, you know, massive business. I, I always loved the first one, the best, the WrestleMania 15. I just, I loved that whole segment, you know, the whole piece of business from. Vince coming out saying he's going to be the referee and then Sean coming out as the commissioner and like getting such a huge part and then like cutting a promo on Vince and sending him to the back. Like I can, I can tell you the whole, you know, I just remember (laughs) watching that whole thing and just thinking, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to be like all of them. You know what I mean? It wasn't, I mean, obviously rock was the guy I was kind of like living vicariously through the most, but there, you know, but it was like I just remember watching all these guys come out and just thinking, "God, listen to these people, man! Look at like look how, look how these like how they've got such a command of the audience and just how like they're so you know th- these guys. You felt at that point in time that there is 
nothing else going on in the world, you know, and that's, that's the, that's the feeling that every wrestler I think is striving to achieve at every point in their careers. They want the people watching to feel like there's nothing else going on in the world at that point in time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think kind of jumping on, to, uh, you know, aside from that, but that just goes back to like, they used to do booking very well there, you know, cause I mean, that rivalry, I mean, it went through years of different iterations and they, they ended up headlining two WrestleManias, right? It was 15 and was it 15, 16 or 15, 17? 15 yeah. and 17. Yeah. And then they, and then they wrestled again at 19. Yeah. That's right. And, and, you know, it, it's just, it's so weird to see if you're watching that product where they're at now, knowing that they could do that kind of stuff. And, you know, anyways, we, we could harp about that all day. Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so uh, can you kind of walk us through, how you ended up in the NWA? Um, was it, you know, a long process or was it just Billy saying, Hey, I need you. And you're there. Like, how did, how did that actually come to be? So I, I had finished up with TNA. Um, most of your listeners will probably be familiar with it at least to a certain extent. So I won't go into too much detail, but um, you know, I'd sort of worked my way through every part of that promotion. Um, and uh, I, I mentioned this in an interview recently, I had had a couple of um, conversations with WWE over the years during that time, and both times I decided to stay. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. A lot of the time it was leverage, um, but it was also, you know, I had got to a point in 2013 where I kind of started to think, okay, I'm 25, 26 now. I've, I, I've I'd had a chance to go before and I had opted to stay because I felt like I was going to learn more getting to work with all these great wrestlers, AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, Kurt Angle, you know, Doug Williams, Beer Money, the Dudleys, you know, on and on, as opposed to go to wrestling school, basically with a bunch of guys who were the same level of experience as me. Um, you know, that was just... That was my decision to make. And I expressed that at the time to Ty Bailey and, you know, kind of thanked him for his interest and just kind of said, I think that, you know, at this point in time, I think this is actually a better education for me, you know, than, than, than that. But um, I'd had another conversation uh, in 2013. Um, and again, you know, TNA came through, you know, with, with a good offer and um, particularly with the terms you know, that was kind of what made me stay. It was the, it wasn't so much the money. The money was okay, but it was the, it was the, it was the fact that it was a, a sort of ironclad guaranteed deal, which at the time was, you know, was nice for security. Cause I've always, you know, I've always sort of aired on the side of security rather than dollar amount. Right. Anyway, um, <clears throat> by the time I'd won the title and I, and I, I will say this, I stuck around because at that point in time I had, I mean, I'd had, most of you guys, you probably know that I had a rotten gimmick when I first showed up at TNA. I was handed this, you know, this complete dud gimmick and I'd managed to somehow survive that. I'd been in tag teams. I'd been, you know, repackaged to singles and then back in a tag team and then back in singles. Uh, and finally it was, I felt like I had sort of earned my respect with the audience. I felt like I'd earned my respect with the locker room. And I could really feel there was a shift, you know, I could really feel people were starting to kind of acknowledge me as, as, a, as a guy who could go, you know, be, who could main event and, and, and 
you know, help drive, you know, drive the promotion forward into the future. And I, and I took great pride in that. And, um, you know, suffice to say that by the time I got to being world champion, which I sort of felt at that point in time, I think I can, I think I can see this through all the way to being world champion. I, I had already, I was already telling my buddies, uh, in our little group that we called the handsome man van, which was like, most of the guys now are in, are in NXT, but, um, it was, you know, myself and uh, Robbie E, who's now Robert Stone, and EC3 and um, Spud, who's now Drake Maverick, you know, a few other guys. I remember saying, we, you know, we'd be driving to house shows and stuff, and I just remember saying, like, when my, when my contract's up, I'm out of here. Like, I'm, I'm finished. And they were just like, what? You're crazy. You know, you're the world champion. Like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, that'd be crazy. And I just, and I said, no, I've, I've done everything I can do. Um, but anyway, I, 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 you know, I, I stay, stick to my guns on that and I, I finish up and leave in, uh, 2015. And look, I wasn't expecting WWE to call me and say, Hey, you know, come in and win the Royal Rumble and headline WrestleMania. Do you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. I, I kind of felt like I had done enough to at least earn an opportunity and when that didn't happen you know I was just so I was so I was so deflated um and also kind of humiliated like I, I just I was sort of angry because I was angry at myself for putting two you know for putting all my eggs in that basket and sort of going I can't believe that I just kind of thought this was going to happen and and I just basically got fobbed off. Um, and, you know, there's a few different theories floating around as to who's responsible for that and why and yada, yada. And obviously some of those seem to have unfolded a bit more in the last few weeks. But, uh, <clears throat> the um, you know, it doesn't change anything. The fact is I was, I was very deflated and it kind of put me, it sent me in a bit of a downward spiral. Uh, I did some stuff with Jeff. Jeff started Global Force Wrestling. Jeff Jarrett, you know, he'd, mm -hmm. he'd always been a big advocate for me. Um, he, he, you know, that 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 promotion started with a lot of promise. You know, we did we sh we shot some um, pilots at the Orleans in Vegas, and the first show drew like three and a half thousand people. You know, and it was and it was a who's who. Like it's like me and Bobby Roode and Gallows and Anderson and like PJ Black and uh, I think Kushida was on that show. I mean, it was like a who's who. Jeez. And, um, and those shows never seen the light of day and, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, and I, and, and Jeff's like, you're going to be the guy, you're going to be my, you're going to be the first champion, you know? And I, I, we do a tournament. I beat Bobby Roode in the final, you know, I win the title. There's this great shot of Jeff holding up my hand, you know, with the belt. And I just remember thinking, cool, like I'm going to lead a new promotion into the future. That's really awesome. And, you know, he had, he had, um, he had a contract with, a bunch of baseball uh, minor league ballparks and like we so we were doing shows and you know it just it felt like there was a lot of promise and then it just you know it just never really got off the ground and and again it uh, wrestling has a tendency to uh create um uh, undue expectations mm -hmm. <laughs> and especially when you're young and you have an ego and you're impressionable you know it, it can be hard um, but you know, I'm glad all these things happen now because now it sort of conditioned me and turned me into the person I am today, which I think is why 
I've been able to to you know to work so well in the NWA. But uh, to to skip ahead to that, um, <clears throat> I basically saw I, I saw the industry kind of moving on without me. Uh, it was you know, and it was kind of disheartening. And I was like. Uh, Marty Skull, you know, is one of my best friends and he was just getting so red hot. Like he had basically created his, his own character. And instead of having a promotion, you know, doing all his stuff and doing all his marketing and his vignettes and everything like that, he just, he'd done it himself. And he'd created this sort of new economy. Uh, and the Young Bucks had done the same thing where they basically said, we don't need a promotion. Like we promote ourselves. Mm -hmm. And they really like pioneered this sort of new approach. Um, and then Cody leaves WWE and kind of, try, you know, kind of does that, you know, kind of does it that way too, where he sort of, he basically says, I'm going to be, instead of saying I'm on the independence, it was more of a sort of, I'm a freelance, you know, yeah, which was really what all wrestlers were once upon a time, mm -hmm. like back in the day. And, I started seeing this and thinking like being sort of uh, constructively envious, you know, where I was kind of like, man, that's so cool. Like this, you know, I wish I could do that. And then I sort of went, I can do that. Uh, and I, I went off and um, I hired someone to shoot some vignettes for me and we, we put them out. And then just as I, you know, this is all, this is a, a lesson in energy you know, I'm not super spiritual or anything like that. And I'm not going to, not going to bore you with sort of, you know, with some long winded kind of, uh, the secret, you know, or anything yeah. like that. But, but you know, it is, there is, there is a lot to be said about your energy because once I sort of mentally turned the corner and went, all right, fuck it, I'm going to do it my way. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, instead of waiting for someone else to, to showcase me the way that I want to be showcased. I'm going to showcase myself the way I want to be showcased. And as that happens, um, Tommy Dreamer calls me up and he's got House of Hardcore and they're doing really well. And Dreamer wants to bring me in because he says, look, you're like the perfect heel for this promotion because you're like the antithesis of everything, you know, that the, these Philly fans, I mean, those the fans in Philly fucking hated me. You know, they're, they're like, uh, you know, I mean. They are hardcore fans up there. They, yeah, you got to have a thick skin, you know, and and um you know but i loved it and uh that sort of coincided with uh david lagana reaching out to me um and he basically said uh what's going on with you why aren't you in wwe why aren't you in like ring of honor or you know new japan or what you know what the hell like did you quit the business <laughs> i kind of went no i think the business quit me yeah. um and he was just like, well, I left TNA because I'm, I'm with Billy, you know, Billy, Billy kind of got screwed over in that whole thing. Uh, and Billy bought the NWA. And I said, yeah, I remember sort of seeing a, a headline about that and thinking, oh, that's cool. I just thought maybe he just bought it for like, for prosperity. Honestly, I didn't even really know if he had any intention to do anything with it. I just thought that's the kind of quirky thing that a rock star would do Yeah, you know, <laughs> to buy, buy the NWA. And, uh, and then they sort of lay out their, their, um, their vision. And I basically say, okay, look, I just bought two boxing pay-per-views back to back for the, you know, in the space of four weeks, this was in the summer of 2017. Um, and I said, you know, one was Mayweather McGregor and one was Canelo triple G. And I said, I bought them for two totally different reasons, right? Mayweather and McGregor is like, 
it's this sort of over the top, like two giant egos, you know, over the top characters, you know, with their sort of huge displays of wealth and they're kind of, you know, trash talking each other. It's flair and dusty. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I buy Canelo Triple G because I'm watching the, the build ups to that by HBO, who I think were just the, the who were just the, the, the gold standard for this kind of thing. And they're and they're selling it like these two guys are the absolute best, you know, pound for pound fighters currently in the world. And you've got and I'm a huge Triple G fan and Triple G story is you know, so interesting. And I think I can relate to it a little bit because it's like, here's this guy who's crushing it in Europe. He's got all the tools. He's got all the talent. And, you know, America's not interested. America's like, oh, he doesn't have enough pizzazz. He doesn't have enough it factor, you know, and and all this kind of thing. And then finally they go, okay, we'll take a shot with this guy. And he just smashes it. He's murdering people, you know, and they go, oh man, what about him and Canelo? You know, Canelo's such a huge star. And it's one of those fights where it's like, it's been years in the making. It's been one of those, you know, what if, and they've been circling each other for years and now it's finally going to happen. And just the way that it was sold to me, I was just like, man, I can't miss this fight now. And I'm glad I didn't. It was a hell of a fight. Um, and I just remember saying to, to David, like, that my problem is there's too much wrestling right now. And and that's a strange thing for a wrestler to say, obviously, from a self-preservation standpoint. But I was just like, every day of the week, you can turn on a TV or some sort of device and there's a wrestling match happening, you know, like Impact, Ring of Honor, Raw, SmackDown, uh, NXT, you know, and this was before AEW, Uh, you know, New Japan. And I was just like, and it's all just wrestling matches, you know, it's just two guys mostly in black trunks and black boots you know doing running knees and german suplexes and you know serious wrestling and you know yada 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 no stakes no rivalry no sort of um you know no per- no personality no pizzazz and no sort of um no, no real sort of feeling of this is it this is what it, this is what we came to see because it's hard to make one match feel important when there are a hundred matches happening every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just remember saying, I'd rather have 10 matches a year and have them all be important than have 200 matches, you know, that, that a bunch of critics online say, Oh, that was a good match, you know? Right. And, uh, and I just kind of said, if we can, if we can do more of this and less of, uh, just a ring and a bunch of wrestlers just having wrestling matches, then, you know, then I'd be, I'm super down to, to get involved in this. And Dave says, okay, I'll, I'll take that away and talk to Billy and, you know, we'll get back to you. Billy called me 10 seconds later. <laughs> and he's just like, all right, I'm picking up what you're putting down kind of thing. And, uh, and I just, the one thing that stuck with me was, um, you know, Billy basically said, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sick and tired of seeing my next door neighbors do gymnastics routines with each other. And I was kind of like, okay, uh, I, I step into my office, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that was that. And then we, and, and because of what I had basically laid out with, uh, you know, my examples of like HBO boxing and Showtime and, you know, and even UFC and, and Dana White and Billy are friends, you know, so, so he was obviously a familiar and, and, and Billy's a big fight fan and people don't know that about him, but he watches a lot of UFC so he kind of he kind of got where I was going with that, and then that's how the Ten Pounds of Gold series was born. 
And that kind of transitions into our next question because we've been big fans of 10 pounds of gold. So when did you find out you were next in line for the 10 pounds of gold? And like, you know, what did you do once you found out and what was your thought process and how did you feel to hold the belt that literally so many legendary performers held before you? Well, the, the, the thing is, um, I, you know, I obviously I kind of knew from the beginning that I was going to win the championship at some point. But I remember the one thing uh, that, that, that Dave and Billy had brought to me was they basically said, look, we were, you know, we were just going to strip all the existing champions because, you know, the NWA at that point had kind of just been relegated to like a handful of sort of renegade independent promotions in the South that no right. one had really heard of. Right. And nothing against any of those people involved. And I don't want to get upset, but you know, the, no one was really acknowledging it. 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control, but there's one thing you can control and that's shaving your bush. Our sponsors at Manscaped are here to remind you to do so. All right, here's the deal, guys. Uh, 2020 has absolutely sucked. We can all chalk it up and say that it is horrible, but there's one thing that should not change, and that is your manscaping routine. And I'm here to tell you what you need to add to your manscaping routine. I'm talking about the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0, premium electric trimmer that's designed to give you a confidence boost through body image. The ceramic blades and skin safe technology are designed to reduce nicks or tugs on uh, your fellows down low because you're not going to go in all willy-nilly. This thing is amazing and you're perfectly fine with it. No cuts like you would with other trimmers. You know what I'm talking about. You've been there, right? The Lawnmower 3.0 is also waterproof, comes with an LED light, so you can manscape in the shower in the dark or a dark shower. Whatever floats your boat. I mean, I'm not judging. They also just released their Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is the perfect add-on to their Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. The Shears 2.0 is a luxury four-piece nail kit featuring tempered stainless steel tools and it includes tip tweezers, rounded point scissors, fingernail clippers, and a medium grit nail file. Uh, the Shears 2.0 nail kit allows you to pluck your eyebrows and trim your nails and styles. Plus, on the website at manscaped.com, you're going to find the Crop Preserver. It's an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer that's going to help you tame that summer swamp ass. You know here in Nashville, it's absolutely horrible. Uh, it's got natural hydrators and antioxidants in there. You're also going to find the Crop Reviver, which is a testy toner that's like having cologne that is designed for your balls. Not going to judge you if you're, like, sitting there sniffing yourself, okay? Go to manscaped.com, check out some of these life-changing products. And, in fact, listeners of the Battleground Podcast right now get 20% off plus free shipping. All you got to do is use that code BATTLEGROUND at manscaped.com. That's 20% off for free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code BATTLEGROUND. It's time to grab 2020 by the horns by shaving that front trunk of yours. Yeah, there was a lot of places flying under the NWA flag at one time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, and the the original intention was just strip all the belts, start again. And then they met Tim Storm. And Tim was, you know, just such a compelling character and such a good man and such a believable, authentic character that they and and they sold me on this because I you know I I did need a bit of selling uh, on it just just out of you know because I, I like I said based on my previous experiences I'd sort of been burned enough to now be a bit more like okay well let's verify this um, and it, they 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 showed me uh, a sit down interview they'd done with him you know where he talked about being a school teacher and he talked about this is his mountaintop. 
and how much it means to him to be the NWA champion. And it was, and you could tell that he was genuine and like the, the, the booker in me and the promoter in me just immediately started getting excited because I went, Ooh, like I can be the perfect antagonist to this protagonist, yep. you know, cause that's how I think like, I don't think like, oh, I can do a, have a good match with this guy because like he, you know, I, he can do all these cool moves and I can do all my cool moves. Like I look at it and then like this, this is how I can achieve an emotional response from the audience. You know, like this is a perfect yin to my yang. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, that's really what I wanted our brand to represent because I felt like there was enough brands already doing the whole kind of, oh, good matches for the sake of good matches. So I just immediately see this guy who's so humble and so likable and so, you know, American <laughs> and just, you know, and I just remember thinking, God, to, to, a, to a regular person or to a, a traditional fan to see this guy up against the sort of slightly brash, slightly unlikable, slightly arrogant British, you know, quintessential wrestler is just, you know, it's a natural matchup. Because look, you have to have self-awareness to, be, to, to thrive in this business. You have to know who you are, right? You can't, you can't pretend, and a lot of people are realizing this now, uh, and to, kind of to your point earlier about you know, what, what some of the booking looks like now compared to what it used to be. Oh, because, yeah. because people are trying to, they're trying to force stuff that isn't there. You know, you've got to know, you've got you to gotta base, base stuff on what's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go from there. You know, Steve Austin really is a kind of ornery kind of uh you know kind of pissed off texas mm-hmm. you know what i mean he's not yeah. like he's not he's he's yes he's yes he would yeah he's he's not driving a monster truck over people's cars who he has a disagreement with right like in real life you know if someone cuts him off at walmart he's not pouring cement into their car but he's, but you know, but he probably would say, "Hey, you dumb son of a bitch." Yeah, you know. So it's like it's a, it's an extension. Yeah, right? like Flair say, in the eighties, he he yeah. lived that lifestyle. That was not a front. And you have to know who you are. And, yeah. And, as and, and my point I'm getting to with that is, you have to know, you have to be, you have to be comfortable enough to know what other people think of you, right? Like you have to know, like I. Look, I'm married to Mickey, right? So it's like, I, you know, you know how many times I've walked into a bar or walked in somewhere and seen all these guys like, you know, looking at her and then just, and then immediately just look at me and be like, fuck this guy, you know, <laughs> without, they don't know me. I've never had a conversation with them. They don't know anything about me, but they're just like, fuck this guy, yep. you know? But, and, and like, so I understand like, okay, cool. If that's the vibe I give off, if that's the impression that people have of me, I can't change that. That's human nature. So I'll just right. work with it and make money with it. And that's, that's the business, you know, it's like you meet Tim Storm, you go, this guy, I like this guy. This guy's just a great guy. You know, you meet me, it might take you a couple of times to go, oh, okay. I, you know, I, some of my best friends will tell you, yeah, when I first met him, I wasn't quite sure how to, what to make of him. You know what I mean? And then they get to know me and they're like, oh, now, you know, now I, I give him the shot off my back. But so, I, you know, once you understand that, you can, you can work with it. So that's kind of... Um, that's how I think. And that's, and, and with, you know, so with Tim, I sort of, I saw it as this major challenge too, because I thought, well, if I, if I can make people care about a man, you know, me versus a 52 year old, 53 year old school teacher from Arkansas who 
for the most part, most fans, particularly online, had not ever really heard of, then I can make them care about a whole lot of stuff. Um, and, and it was a testament to the quality of the production that we were putting out too, you know, because Tim now is as important to this brand as me or anybody else, you know, and it's like that, it, it, was, it was really more of a, a proof of concept, right? We, we showed everybody, look, we can, we, we, can, we can tell real stories here and really hook you in with, with the idea of one, one prize, one match, one, one culmination, one moment that you have to see. And you could feel it pretty, pretty early on, like some of the sort of more um, discerning kind of publications and, you know, stuff that was that tend to, tended to lean more towards whatever the cool kids were into. You know, they start kind of requesting like, hey, can we talk to Nick about this, you know, about the NWA and, mm -hmm. you know, guys like Sam Roberts and people like that are kind of going, hey, can we have Nick come in and talk about this? Because this is so interesting and compelling and so different. That's the key word, you know, people will say this is so different. And that's really been our MO from, from, the, from the beginning is to try to be different. Right. And I've seen people online mention things like, you know, old school storytelling and stuff. And it's like, it's just storytelling. Like that should be what yes. every organization is doing. I mean, you may bring out like a, you know, Texas strap match. That's obviously something from, you know, the old days. But I mean, like storytelling is like, that's, that's the whole point, you know? Right, right. So, I think that, yeah, like a lot of the time, uh, this, this used to be one that made me laugh was like, you would see these fans online. They would call somebody like Randy Orton, you know, Randy's probably the greatest, the best worker in the business today. And they, uh, you know, and they say, oh, he's boring. He's, oh, they say he's lazy, yeah. lazy. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I'll tell you what's lazy. Lazy is deciding to do 20 finishes in one match because you can't, because you're too lazy to, to try to work on your storytelling or work on putting it in the right order or work on your facial expressions and your emotional connection with the audience to get them to care about one finish. Mm -hmm. But you just, you know that, it, but it's like, it's like th those kind of matches to me are like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Yeah. Right? It, might, it might be it might be fun. It might be fun once in a while to like put on some sweatpants and go to the local like Chinese all-you-can-eat buffet, and and it and it sounds fun at first. Or it's like when you go stay at a hotel and you go to a breakfast buffet. Oh, I can yep. have everything I want, and you have all these things that you wouldn't normally have. Oh, I'll have. I have eggs and bacon and sausage and pancakes and croissants and waffles and fruit and oh, I'll have a fruit salad and muesli. You know, you have all this stuff that you wouldn't normally have. Yep. And nobody's going like, to judge you. Right. But it's like, <laughs> you don't want to do that all the time. You can't do that every like, day. No. No. And that it would be lazy and it would be like, it's the, that's the equivalent of someone saying, oh, that, that all you can eat buffet is so much better than this, like, you know, perfectly cooked uh swordfish with you know this and that like you know what i'm saying yeah. it's like that it's just it's that sort of um it's that to see that to me is lazy right you know and and um I, I don't i'm not sure where we were going with that but i just wanted to to jump on that oh uh, yeah the old school thing yeah because yeah because that's that you're right that's something that gets thrown out a lot oh you guys and that's you know a lot of the time i can tell when like a lot of wrestlers will say this uh and i can tell i can always tell when someone's just trying to like kiss ass to try to get a job or try to sort of, um, you know, earn some favor is when mm -hmm. they go, Oh man, I, I love what you guys are doing old school. And it's like, yeah. you have, you ain't, you ain't watched what we're doing no. because I'm sorry. We innovated a whole load of stuff that that's been 
kind of ripped off by quite a few people at this point since 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and and <laughs> the, the, the 10 Pounds of Gold series, there was nothing old school about that. Nope. Like following guys around and, and, you know, literally filming everything from walking through the airport to getting the rental car to showing up at the building and, you know, and being honest and, and like embracing the reality of the situation, but working it into the presentation, like not a, not a worked shoot, which is just, which is just even worse than just doing a regular work. Like right. that's just the worst when people try to do that. It's even more insulting to your intelligence. We weren't doing that. We just, we just, we just presented it like a sport. Right. <laughs> we just said, "Yeah, this guy's wrestling this guy, and this is how he really feels about it." Like, and pe- people, people can wrap their heads around it. You know, it's like, well, I wonder. And ultimately, that's the that's the objective is to get fans to go. I don't know what's going to happen next. Right. You know, and because then. I would see all this stuff. They would speculate. Oh, I bet they're gonna. Oh, they're gonna do this. They're gonna set this guy up because they couldn't understand why we were why we were making such a big deal about Tim. Because in their world, it's like, well, he's not a star, you know. So, so then, of course, all the theories start coming. Oh, well, they're probably just doing that to get sympathy. So, like, you know, Aldis will beat him on their first match, and then they'll and then they'll start, you know, then they'll start pushing Aldis. You know, it's like, and because you know that, that they weren't, they didn't, they didn't really know what was happening. They didn't understand what they were being presented because it was being presented uh, as real. Yeah, in the right way, right? Yeah, and it's like I said with, you know, in the build to me and Cody, I said it feels real because it is real. Like nothing nothing that's happened here has been predetermined or scripted. You know, it's like what you, you know, whatever we're saying to each other at any point in time is happening in that point in time. Nothing was discussed. Right. Ever. Well, that actually is a perfect segue into the next question. So that was a very good setup there. Um, I actually was at All In in Chicago um, when you and Cody faced off for the NWA World Heavyweight title. Um, I also had that uh, ranked as my number one match of the year as well. Um, how, you know, how did that come about? Uh, you know, obviously at that time, this was pre-AEW. Cody was still technically a free agent i guess whatever you want to call it freelancer no, he was under con- no he was under contract to ring of honor that's right yeah i'm sorry that's right he was still with ring of honor that's right as were as were the young bucks that's right yeah that because the the ring of honor crew were the ones that staged that that's right R- ring um, of honor allowed and facilitated that entire event to happen yeah well how did that become about specifically um it's specific the, the the main question i want to know is um you know once the bell hit and the entire roof exploded. What was that experience like? Because I can't even, I've tried to explain to people what it felt like in there when that happened, and I can't. Um, and then I know you've had some talks about this, but were there, um, was it always a plan for three matches with you two, or was two as far as you got before things changed? Uh, I mean, I, I think we, yeah, we wanted the trilogy for sure. Um, but, you know, Tony Khan. Uh, came into play <laughs> so yeah. that kind of made things you know made things uh, difficult mm-hmm. um but uh yeah look the um i i remember i think it was i, I think it was when i first arrived in chicago um i could just feel I could feel the audience, you know, because obviously we had Starcast and all the, you know, all the sort of, the, the, you know, media and different stuff. Everywhere I went, 
you know, fans weren't sort of just going like, hey, hey, Nicodus, you know, hey, Magnus. Right, like that's what it used to do, right? Uh, by the time we got to that, every single fan in Chicago was kind of like looking at me and sort of being like, well, there's the champ. You know, like it was this, there was this sort of different, there's this sort of different energy from everyone. And um, I remember uh, when we did the weigh-ins, you know, we, we decided to do weigh-ins, right? And um, I, uh, <laughs> this is a funny story. So a, 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 a buddy of Shannon Moore, who's a, a buddy of mine, uh, is a luxury car dealer in Chicago. And he's a big fan and had basically reached out and said, I'm so like, I'm such a big fan. I'm so hyped for this match. We've got tickets for all in. Listen, whatever cars you want for the weekend, like here's my inventory, like take whatever you want. Well, that's cool. So, so I went, cool. I'll have a Bentley. And, and then my buddies, uh, Sam Shore and, and, um, Shannon and, and Davari, um, Sam Shore, who's now uh, Dexter Loomis, uh, th- I was like, and get get the G wagon for my for my buddies. So we're all cruising around in a Bentley and a G wagon the whole weekend. Well, we go to the weigh-ins, and like you know, obviously I got the suit on and you know the whole deal. I show up in the Bentley, but I'd been doing a signing and media and stuff before that, and I had to and and I had about an hour to go back to the hotel and like chill before coming back for these weigh-ins, right? And I was starving. I'd gone back to the hotel, make sure I'm presentable, you know. I'd, you know, changed my suit, got the whole deal. And I'm starving. So I'm like on the way to the, on the way back to the building to do the weigh-in. Uh, I, me and, me and Davari are in this, in this Bentley, right? And I, and I go through a Wendy's drive through <laughs> In a Bentley? I'm starving. In a, in a Bentley, yeah. In a fucking, like, you know, $2,000 suit. Because <laughs> I go through the Wendy's drive through and get like a triple cheeseburger. But you see, because the thing is, it's what, it's what I was talking about with like the rivalry with, with Cody and I being kind of real. You mm-hmm. know, like we like we, we obviously respect each other a great deal. Uh, and we both knew, I think, from the beginning, from just from our first the first time we interacted with each other in London at that Ring of Honor show. You could just feel the like you could feel the audience go, oh, shit, like this is cool, you know, mm-hmm. because. It was, you know, he's he works for this promotion and he's the NWA champion and they're talking about this other event and, they, and they're going to face it. Oh, my God. You know, like it was just it just was you could, you know, I think the audience just started realizing like, wow, we're seeing a new era in the business, mm-hmm. you know, like not not, you know, not necessarily not just because not just so much about like me and Cody, although obviously that was a natural matchup, but it was the it was just the sort of the circumstances, right? They went, this is so cool that all these people have been able to to sort of come together to make this happen. Right. Um, so, but, but leading up to that, you know, Cody's very competitive. You know, Cody wants to be, Cody wants to be in the middle of every poster. He wants to be, you know, he wants to be the face of everything. He mm-hmm. wants to be the brand. He wants to make, you know, he wants to have the biggest, you know, he wants to have the longest line. He wants to have the biggest pop. He wants to have the the, the, the most important moment. He wants to have the, the, the marquee match. He wants to have he wants to have the ice cream bars and the whole deal, right? So do I. Um, and yet here I am sort of being kind of praised as doing this, you know, doing a good job as the as the world champion with the belt that his father held. 
so there was like a real, there was a kind of a genuine kind of rivalry there because I knew what he wanted, you know, but then at the same time, I'm a little envious of him because I'm like, well, you've had 10 years making that money at WWE, you know, cry me a river, buddy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and like, and he's sort of, and like, you know, you're getting all these things, you know, you're getting all these opportunities just presented to you one after another, New Japan, a ring of honor and this and that. So I'm sort of sitting, you know, so I'm again, not, not bitter, but just in a, you know, in a sort of healthy kind of envious way, kind of being like, listen, if you're going to, if you're going to take this from me, you're going to fucking earn it. Right. And that's, yeah. again, that's how, that's, that's how I think this business is supposed to be done. It's like, there should be a little bit of genuine competitiveness and rivalry. So leading up to all in Cody was, you know, Cody was the one who wanted to do the weigh-ins and he's, um, he was, you know, he was texting Dave Lagana going, how, how does Nick look? Is he, does, is he in shape? You know, does he look good? You know, and, and I, and I started realizing he doesn't, he, he, he wanted to do this weigh-in because he wanted to do a pose down. You know uh. what I mean? He didn't really want, he didn't really want to weigh in. He wanted a pose down. And, and I just, look, there, there, there are, there, there are a lot of areas where Cody and I can be compared. And there are some areas where he has me beat, but physique is not one of them. <laughs> and, and I just remember just thinking, okay, buddy. So I was like 245 and I cut down to like 235. Oh, geez. And I, you know, and I was, I mean, I was, was pretty solid. And I, and I, but I remember getting the, the Wendy's and just like, sh- just strutting into that building, just like through all the through all the fans, like with the suit on, like drop the Bentley outside with the valet, like here, buddy, you know. And I walk in with the Wendy's, just like, and the, I had the title belt in one hand and the Wendy's in the other. And I walk into the green room, and it's like all the New Japan brass are in there, <laughs> all the elite guys, like the Impact brass are in there, Jeff and Karen are in there, it's just like a who's who of the wrestling business. And Cody's like doing push-ups and like, you know, getting ready for this like way and stuff. And I just walk in just munching, obnoxiously munching on this like triple cheeseburger. <laughs> I'm like, hey, what's up, buddy? And like, you know, I'm doing it deliberately. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, I wasn't really sort of flexing on him. Do you know what I mean? But he was just like, oh man, come on. You know, like, and you know, I go out and like, and I could feel then uh, when, when I went out, because I thought, okay, everyone will boo me because it's like, it's all, you know, it's all Bullet Club fans, yada, yada, yada. But I go out to do the, the weigh-in and it's like, I remember taking off the, the, the shirt or jacket, whatever it was I had on. And I just remember the building. I remember like the fans in the room just sort of going like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, and, I, and, and, and uh, there's even a clip on, on the 10 pounds that covered all in the 10 pounds of gold episode where there's one of the fans that says, oh man, like, seeing him at the weigh-in and the press conference just like totally changed my whole view of this, you know, like he, he just looked like, I was just like, shit, that's a star, you know, like, that's like, I don't know who's going to win this now because, mm-hmm. it was, you know, because they suddenly went and that was my whole objective of that was to go, look, we all know what you want. We know that you want Cody to win and we know that Cody wants to win, but it won't mean shit if you don't, you know, if the other guy, if you, if you, there isn't some, there isn't some part of you as an, as a viewer that goes, I don't know, man, I kind of want Aldous to win too, though. You know, like that, if, if it was just a straight up, like, oh yeah, like this guy's just coming in to do the job to Cody. 
it wouldn't have meant anything. My right. objective was to was between the time we made the match, you know, official in like May to September first. My objective was to make everybody think these guys are the, not only are they the same level, but I don't know if Cody can beat this guy, mm-hmm. or I don't know, or not, you know, not can beat. But like, I don't know if Cody's going to go over in this. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. that was the whole objective was to get them to a point where they went, "Shit, this is this is a pick'em. This is 50-50. Yeah, I mean, that's a hundred percent what I th- I thought. I mean, even yeah, even I, in the stands, I was like, "Shit, I don't know." Right, <laughs> and, and I always there was a part of me that that night, and uh, you know, I went back to the hotel and just had a kind of quiet night. Um, uh, you know, Mickey couldn't come because WWE wouldn't let her. <laughs> and uh well that's shocking so, so that was fun but uh so i'm just like just chilling on my own in my room you know what i mean and um i remember like talking to sam and davari and stuff because you know we just like you know we may we may have had some herbal herbal medicine uh <laughs> got you know, to and then, got to uh, you know just had like a quiet night whatever and i remember like chit-chatting with them and just and i kind of said like I almost feel weird saying this because I don't want to jinx it. I was like, but I get this feeling we're going to get this huge standing O at the bell, right? And I don't, I want to be careful how I say this because I know how shit can get misquoted and taken out of context. I don't want anyone to think that I'm comparing myself to The Rock or Hulk Hogan. But I remember saying, I think we might get that Hogan Rock thing at the beginning where it's like people are just kind of, by the time we get there, they're just so ready to see it mm-hmm. that they're just, they kind of just lose their shit. Yep. And I never mentioned it to Cody because I didn't want to jinx it. Uh, and I just kind of trusted Cody. And I think that's where the magic, I think that's where our chemistry really comes from is that I kind of already knew that he was thinking the same thing. And mm-hmm. I, I knew that he knew that I knew, do you know what I mean? Like, yep. I, so we never had to say something. We never had to say, Hey, let's take a moment and wait at the beginning to see if the people like come up and go crazy. Like we just kind of knew. So then Earl does the instructions and rings the bell and we just kind of stand there looking at each other. And I just see Cody, you know, and then I just like, I just sort of look and I hear a few people start to come up and then I just kind of tilted my head and acknowledged just a touch. And then next thing I know, I just like the whole place is like a wave. People just, you know, it just, it just, well, you were there, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, was up in the like, suites just, and even up that just, high, it was just, it, it just, it was just like a monster, you mm-hmm. know, sort of, within seconds it was like, and I remember that was the, f- one of the only times in my life in the ring where for a minute I was just kind of out of my body, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of standing going like, this is a whole different, this isn't goosebumps. This is like a different, this is even more than that. This is yep. like what's happening. The only other time I had that was the first time I wrestled Sting. Oh. I was standing there. I was standing there in the ring, and like Sting's music hit, and the crowd popped. And I just remember for a second, just sort of standing there, going, uh, "I'm watching Sting's like mm-hmm. entrance," <laughs> and I, and Doug Williams was stood there with me, and Doug was like, "All right, pull it together, mate." Like, <laughs> which is so funny because like Doug's always such a mentor to me, you know, and he could obviously tell like that. I, for a minute, he just he knew like, "Oh shit, deer in the headlights." And he was like, "Pull it together," you know, and. uh and the funny thing is that in that moment I kind of took charge with Cody because I saw Cody and again you can see this on the 10 pounds of gold episode that, that covered it but there's a they, we got a close up with our camera crew because we had our own crew there and they got a close up of Cody 
and you can see for a minute like his lip starts to quiver like and he's he almost loses it mm-hmm. like he's you know over overwhelmed with emotion because it, it, you know it was very emotional for him because of his father and everything yep. and because of all the work he had done to get that event to you know to take place and i remember uh, you can see me like talking to him and you can't make it out on camera but i was going like all right it's time to go to fucking work let's get it together do you know what i mean like because i saw you know i saw him start to lose it and i went all right let's fucking get to work like and then we go you know and it was kind of like just a you know i always i always be grateful to every fan in that building because uh i i saw that reaction um i sort of look at it as that was my pop do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like because everyone you know because obviously cody has the huge moment at the end with the win and you know that reaction was you know was was another level in and of itself but to me, I kind of, I always sort of looked at it as I felt like it was that audience kind of acknowledging me and going, we want, we want you to know that you've done a good job. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because obviously I wasn't going to get a pop of my own. So it was kind of like, I always looked at it like that as they went, we're, we're here to see this. Mm-hmm. Like, and we want you to recognize that. Well, I think the cool thing with it was, especially from a fan standpoint, was um, I'm in that weird age where I, I watched NWA when I was little, but then I was not old enough to go to a program, you know, it already kind of mm-hmm. went through the nineties and did that stuff. Sure. And then also, you know, it, it did have an old school NWA feel in the sense that, you know, Ric Flair would fight anybody anywhere. I mean, he'd go to right. a fairground in Florida and then go to Charlotte and then Nash. I mean, he didn't care. And it well, kind of had that feeling too, you know, a, you, a perfect example, the, the week before I'm defending it in a sold out you know, see a center in front of 11,000 people in Chicago. I was defending it in West Virginia at a, at a fairground. Right. State fairground. But it kind of had that feeling that y'all met at, you know, kind of a quote unquote neutral spot. He's not an NWA, you are, and you're like, bring on all the challengers. So I think it was really cool for a lot of the fans, especially for those that didn't get to see, you know, the NWA live back in the day. Yeah. It was felt like a prize fight, which is what we were, oh, totally. always gone. It's what we've always gone for. We've, that's what I've called it from the beginning, the prize fight approach to pro wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, like I said, I, I had that rated as my number one match of, of 2018. So. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Of course, uh, we all have that on our biggest matches of 2018, but that's going to wrap up part one of our interview with Nick Aldis. Uh, so thank you guys so much for being here with us on the Battleground Podcast today. Uh, Instagram, we're Battleground Podcast. Twitter, Battleground IHR. And of course, go grab a Battleground Podcast t-shirt. You can get them at TerritoryWrestlingTees.com. But Monday, we will be dropping part two of our episode with Nick Aldis, and this is where we're going to get into the good stuff. Uh, what's, uh, what's, what's the new NWA pay-per-view deal going to look like? Uh, we're going to see what he thinks about some people's comments about Nick. Uh, where he sees NWA heading, who does he want to wrestle next for good old sweet Charlotte, and a whole lot more. So we're dropping episode two Monday. We'll do that. Uh, We'll drop it around, I don't know, say 6 a.m. Eastern time. So make sure you listen, subscribe to the podcast, give us five stars, leave us a nice review, and we'll be back. Episode number 150 is starting Monday, uh, part two with Nick Aldis. Until then, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you guys on Monday. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Battleground Podcast. Make sure you give it five stars and a nice review. To stay up to date with the show, follow them at Battleground Podcast on Instagram.